Hello and welcome to another recording of The Round Table. This week we're discussing to what extent is conflict changing and what can previous conflicts such as Nagorno-Karabakh, Iraq, Syria, Libya and even Ukraine teach us about conflict going forwards. In order to do this, we're going to discuss themes such as tanks and do they have a place in the modern battlefield, drones, open source intelligence and what value we've seen from this in the Ukraine conflict, as well as other themes such as changing naval strategy and is the West well prepared for conventional conflict going forwards. So, with that in mind, I think it's easy. It'll be easy to get stuck into our first, uh, our first question, and that's about tanks. And this is a question I keep seeing coming up over and over again in media, in general discussion, enthusiasts, whatever. People saying tanks are no longer relevant. Tanks don't have a place in the modern battlefield. And uh, just before you guys, I get, kind of tag you guys in. Part of my, my opinion on this is that I think a lot of people are using what we're seeing in Ukraine as a. Uh, as a way of determining whether tanks have a place or not, as well as years of counterinsurgency from a Western perspective. But I think there's an argument to be, to be made that tanks perhaps haven't been used in the way that they're intended to in Ukraine and they've been generally mismanaged. And we've seen that with, with uh, poor logistics, particularly from the Russians, which has been very highly publicised. So how do you, what do you guys think about this? Do you think tanks are still relevant? Do you think they have a place? If so, why or why not, for example? Uh, well... I'll have a crack first. Uh, my view, yes, they still have a place. Uh, when it comes to sort of criticisms, criticisms about the use of tanks in counterinsurgency, I think the focus on that to start with is too much on Afghanistan. If you look at counterinsurgency in Iraq, tanks still had a very relevant place there when it came to urban warfare. Uh, in fact, I think probably the, the probably the best example of how tanks can be used in the counterinsurgency context is the siege of Fallujah uh, back in two thousand and four. Uh, I think I, I think the the particular unit was the Third uh, Battalion, First Marines uh, from, uh, from the United States Marine Corps. Their attacks involved the use of of armor, and uh, you know within 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 city uh, within the, uh, the the city of Fallujah, and. As as well as with regards to with regards to tanks, I think they still have uh, still have relevance on the basis of uh, I've, I think it's a I'm gonna uh, I've got a bit of a cynical view about criticisms towards uh, towards tanks because from what I've noticed over the years when it comes to discussions about uh, the use of tanks in the 21st century, it's usually to it's usually used as a means to justify further cuts to defence budgets. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. We've seen that in Europe as well. We, I think it was the uh, kind of off the top of my head. I think it was the Netherlands who sold off a lot of their Leopard twos. I think they sold them to Finland in the end, and then they and then war in Ukraine started quite a few years ago now. And the Netherlands started to realise that okay, tanks do have a place in the battlefield. And as you said, I think budget has always been quite a key aspect of whether or not we need them or not. Yeah, yeah and in fact, actually, uh, to I suppose add, add another one, another example to that is actually, I think it was, I came across the incident this morning, uh, Poland's Ministry of National Defense has uh, finalized a deal with the, with the US. I believe they're going to buy up to 250 M1 Abrams from the, from the United States. Mm. So I think whether, whether the, I think, whether you know, critics like it or not, tanks still still yeah. have a place. Yeah, I think it's a um, it's kind of a, a, a trope or a, a well worn canard. You know, I mean, the day will come when tanks are obsolete, just as you know the the armored knight was. But I think that's a fair way off. People have been saying this since you know the the Yom Kippur War and and um, plenty of examples of you know a new anti tank missile comes along or something. People think they're that the tank day the tank is over. I think what we've seen um, in Nagorno Karabakh, where I don't know, you probably know how many tanks got destroyed, but 
Um, and also in Ukraine is tanks not being used with, with proper air defence. They're, they're often not being used with proper support. Um, we've seen the Russians going into built-up areas with our infantry. Um, and we should remember that a lot of the, the media stuff that we are seeing, like the open source intelligence, the, the clips that are on, on TikTok and, and Twitter and stuff, they often don't show the whole picture. They, you know, they don't, they might show a Russian T-72 being hit with a, with some sort of anti-tank missile. Uh, and then they cut and they probably don't see that the tank survived and, and carried on and maybe it's accompanying tanks counterattacked, you know, so... I think it's 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 another step in the in the offense defense mm. arms race. We'll probably see tanks with more dedicated air defense, whether it's in terms of an, another track vehicle accompanying tra- tank platoons, or whether it's you know lasers on top of tanks in the years to come. Who knows? Yeah, I think one of the arguments I've seen a lot of, which I think actually has a lot of weight as well, is that tanks simply haven't been used in the way that they're intended and sort of what is meant by this is general you know theory on the use of tanks and armored vehicles in general is that they, they were used better in ma- on mass so rather than sending them piecemeal in to support infantry they're more effective when they're used as a, kind of like a cavalry i guess in that they're used in large numbers in a way that's very difficult to stop if you're just you know if you're basically the whole point is to overwhelm using superior force and i think what we've seen obviously take this with a pinch of salt as what you just said about what we see from the war in Ukraine. I think what we've seen with tanks there is they often seem to be being used as infantry support weapons rather than standalone units that are used en masse. So there's still an argument there to be made that we haven't truly seen, you know, perhaps what they're intended to be used for. But and you also mentioned sort of the battle between countermeasures and tank weapons. And I think that's a really interesting one because in a time of war, these technologies are just advanced so quick, it's impossible to keep track of. I feel like at the moment it would just take one sort of, contraption you know or some some form of technological technological change to improve tank countermeasures against guided missiles such as atgms which you've seen like proliferating yeah, I mean, in like ukraine the, the javelin is the first decent properly yeah. good top attack weapon. yeah exactly and it would you might you know someone's going to find something against that yeah eventually um one thing we've seen from ukraine is that the russian explosive reactive armor is nothing like as effective mm. as it should be yeah um, there is good explosive reactive armor but clearly the russians don't have it for sure yeah and i think kind of using the previous conflict in this example here is you mentioned it yourself actually alex was the aa coverage as well as radar jamming we've seen tank formations with woeful aa coverage often not distributed at a very low level at all it's often sort of seen as a separate arm to the to the armored forces themselves and particularly in the gorno karabakh where drones which we'll come on to later where drones were so prolific was we saw quite antiquated old-fashioned russian soviet era aa coming up against very modern israeli turkish drones with sufficient radar jamming which was able to to basically to block the aa systems and we saw suddenly therefore tanks were very vulnerable but then defensive tanks what i'd say is a tank force with sufficient aa and radar uh, anti-radar jamming te- uh, coverage would be very hard to stop if your if your force is not armed with tanks itself. So let's say, for example, you've got you've got air assets, but then their tanks are protected by anti-air assets. So that somewhat counters that. Suddenly, without tanks of your own, it's going to be very difficult to counter this tank force. So it's uh, I do think there's a role, but I guess to add a bit of nuance to the argument, I think the role of tanks is is changing and it's becoming a bit more restricted. I think the days of them being harder to target from air perhaps are fewer and far between now i think tanks are just a bit more vulnerable but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're useless there's a lot of things that are vulnerable on a battlefield that have a very important role yeah in fact <coughs> i think sorry to jump in but we should also mention that we're mainly talking about tanks because we're now seeing 
state-on-state conflicts where yeah. armoured formations are a thing again. We've had 30, with exceptions of, like, Iraqi freedom, mm. we've had 30 years of peacekeeping and yeah, yeah. counterinsurgency yeah. where they've not looked so rough. Yeah. But the very fact that we're discussing them now can... shows yeah, more state-on-state. Yeah, and in fact, at the, I'm probably going to going to contradict myself here a little bit. Is uh, what you were mentioning before with regards to the upgrades in technology? Um, I know with a lot of the tank warfare that we've seen uh, with Ukraine and Nagorno Karabakh, uh, a lot of this is all is all you know sort of uh, Russian or former former Soviet equipment. Now, uh, Western Western tanks have been effective in, in counterinsurgency, but for as long as I can remember, I don't think we've actually seen. Tanks like the the Leopard Two or the or the M1 Abrams tank actually be used in mm. a in a conventional war. So, at the moment, I guess you could say the jury the jury's still out yeah. um, because those. I, mean, I suppose the final answer will come is when those particular tanks are are put into a a, a real conventional conflict once again. Mm, sure, and obviously, as Alex said, conf- uh, conventional conflicts looking more and more likely, not just in amongst Western countries but amongst other states as well. And in the past, as you said about, it's hard to tell how Western tanks will perform. I think historically, Western nations that have provided weapons to other countries have often looked at other smaller conflicts to see how their weapons perform. So like India, Pakistan, for example, both all sides were looking, this is a long time ago now, but sides were looking to see how their tanks would perform against their opposing nations' tanks who were supplied to both sides. Iran-Iraq conflict even. You had British tanks involved in that, albeit on a limited scale. People were interested to see how they perform. Same, same goes for aircraft as well. So as you said, it's hard to tell exactly how effective Western tanks are without actually seeing them, seeing them in a conventional conflict situation. Because we've only really seen them in counterinsurgency where tanks are not really a primary sort of force. So somewhat linked to tanks then, so moving on to the sort of second part, the sub part of this section, mo- moving away from tanks is uh, drones. And sort of, you know, we can talk about drones all day. So I'll try and limit this conversation to sort of this one sort of question, I guess. Again, I see a lot is, um, are drones evolutionary or revolutionary so anyone wondering what we mean by that by evolutionary i mean is it just more of the same just carried out by different methods i guess and by revolutionary i mean are drones changing the face of conflict and our army is going to be forced to uh be forced to adjust because of drones so i'll let you guys kind of discuss that one well yes they'll be forced <laughs> in both they'll be forced to adjust their tactics but they're not a revolutionary mm. new thing i don't think i mean What's interesting about drones for me is that they seem to span quite a broad spectrum of technology. You've got very high-end drones operated by major states and you've got really low-end quadcopters that have been bought by insurgent groups in Myanmar and are used to drop mortar rounds on people with a webcam on them. Um, So in that sense, we're seeing groups, people who maybe can't afford an air force in any conventional way or or even any form of of air power can now actually get their hands on some level of aerial reconnaissance some level of even call it air support um yeah so it's it's kind of democratization of air power almost you know i Completely agree. Mm. Uh, you know, they've they haven't they've they've provided an ev- they've uh, they're an evolutionary 
uh, contribution mm. to warfare. Just basically to, I suppose, um, add to everything Alex just said on that one. I mean, what I've noticed is, yep, they've improved intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance for starters. Uh, I mean, they're just what you can what you can do with uh, what you can do these days with a you know whether it be a a predator or a reaper or even the i think probably the most impressive one i've i've come across is the uh it's the i think it's the rq4 alpha global hawk mm. uh that is a that is certainly a a, a very very inter- interesting uav and also the improvements in, in direct in direct fire support uh you know alex was mentioning that with a quadcopter you can use those for uh for adjusting fire i mean uh, uh, to sort of ha- uh sort of you know, utilize some prior experience when I was uh, uh, working in Libya, uh, monitoring the the war going on there. The uh, yeah, there'd be uh, cases, there'd, there'd be incidents where we'd come across a, a mortar a mortar attack being posted on social media, and they're using a quadcopter mm. to uh, to uh, to adjust uh, adjust the fire. Um, and also, in fact, with regards to Ukraine, uh, before the before the the war kicked off, where it was a a, a stalemate which had been in place since twenty uh, since Russia's invasion of the Donbass region and Crimea in twenty fourteen, a common factor of a lot of ceasefire violations from the uh, from the uh, LPR and DPR separatist groups was that they would use uh, they would use quadcopters uh, or sort of you know uh, uh, I think uh, there's like the uh, six propeller ones as well. Mm. They would actually use those to uh, as a as a form of uh, as a form of in, of you know like a, a mini airstrike. They would actually fly those things over, and they'd be armed with uh, either or Vog seventeen or Vog twenty five grenade launcher rounds, and they drop those rounds from uh, from above on on Ukrainian forces. And I, I believe the Ukrainians would do uh, would do the same as well. So, in that regard, a little quadcopter can provide uh, you know sort of um, on demand. Uh, on on demand air, air support or or in indirect fire, and the I think the last the the last point that Alex brought up there with regards to uh, you know, allowing a, a capability jump, uh, absolutely uh, yeah, Alex is spot on on that one. Uh, Libya Libya again is a is a prime example when both sides the GNA and the LNA when both their air forces were es- essentially depleted, uh, completely destroyed. They you know lost all the. Uh, all that Soviet era stuff that uh, they did, both sides inherited from uh, from Colonel Gaddafi. Both sides looked to uh, looked to uh, utilizing UAVs. Uh, the GNA uh, bought the Bayraktar TB2 from from Turkey, and that was that proved to be a you know an abs you know a, a provider you know repla- a direct replacement of their air force. And the LNA did the same with the uh, the, the well the Chinese knockoff of the uh, of the Predator drone, uh, the the Winglong two. So it's the, I think the, I think the answer on that one is well I agree with Alex on mm. on that one is that it's, they're an evolutionary. One thing that does make me wonder about drones is is the development of AI, and um, I mean we're not there yet, but at what point do we see truly autonomous systems mm. that have you know they're programmed to kill basically and they do so without human input. Um, Fortunately, for the time being, I think we've got a bit of time before this yeah. roundtable has well, to discuss it. But yeah, <laughs> true. Honestly, I hope never on that one because uh, with uh, you know, with uh, you know, drones and, and UAVs have proven to be a, an evolutionary capability, but they're not without drawbacks. Uh, I think if you want to look at sort of the you know, probably the one major disadvantage 
that has come with the use of, with the addition of drones and UAVs is look at how the Obama administration used UAVs in counterterrorism operations. Uh, there's quite a lot of cases where uh, a lot of collateral damage in, uh, collateral damage ensued. Mm. So I think the consensus there then is that drones are essentially evolutionary, and I largely agree myself. In that I see them as more of a way of delivering munitions in a way that we've always done in the past. Anyway, they're essentially just another air asset. And yes, they are better. In, they are better in certain areas, but they are delivering munitions. They're attacking, they're attacking targets, doing reconnaissance in the same way that we would have done with airstrikes, for example. But with that said, I think things such as drone swarms perhaps have the potential to mm. maybe change things. But again, the technology and the proliferation of drone swarms, as we often refer to colloquially, colloquially as. I think just we're not quite there yet. So again, similar to AI, the technology is not quite there to see them proliferate into all militaries just yet, but they certainly have the potential to be quite a um, significant feature. But then again, you could just say they're still just performing the role of other munitions. They're still just delivering munitions against yeah. the target. So the last, the, sort of the last sub-question of this, this is more about you, Alex, as, as a naval enthusiast, is um, but this one's a bit more tricky to discuss, is uh, how naval conflict and naval strategy is changing. But this is a little bit more tricky because we haven't had the conventional conflicts that we've seen on the ground to perhaps influence our opinions a bit. But with that said, I still think you can still see signs of where militaries are going with their navies. Well, certainly, yeah. Um, I mean, the biggest one, of, obviously, is China, who now have the biggest navy and, and one of the most modern. Um, again, I'd say if we're looking more at, if we are seeing more of a return to state-on-state -state conventional warfare, then I think navies, the naval element is is going to be far more important than than we've noticed for the last 30 years. I mean, navies are always doing something. They've played important roles um, in all of the conflicts, even peacekeeping that we've had. They've provided offshore strike, support, all sorts of things. But if it is, if there is a move towards state-on-state -state conflict and state-on-state -state competition short of conflict, then the maritime domain is going to come to the fore. And I don't know if we're quite ready for that because when ships start sinking, that's a, that's a much bigger deal mm. than, than losing a few tanks, you know. Um, people don't see it, but there is still a naval element to, to Ukraine, not just Russian ships attacking from the Black Sea, but Russian ships have been patrolling in the eastern Mediterranean as kind of the the picket outliers against intervention. Um, and yeah, I sort of think ships, if there's a return to more state-on-state -state conflict, ships are going to have to be put in harm's way in a way that they haven't been for some time. And whether we're prepared for those risks or not, um, I don't know. Whether people are mentally prepared for it as as the public um we're going to come come on to the west's pre um level of preparation for conflict in the future but like it, it's like people said when the when the uh, royal navy commissioned the new carriers great do we dare send them anywhere because mm. if one of those got torpedoed or something yeah, or, yeah. or hit by a anti-ship ballistic missile or something like some, it's kind of the ball game now. Yeah, <laughs> situations which I think sort of give us an insight into our willingness to lose ships, I guess, is kind of going back quite a bit as well. It was the in the Gulf Wars, for example, Iraqi mines in the Persian Gulf mm. presented a serious threat because not only are they cheap, they can just be chucked around fairly quickly. Mm. 
you know they can be distributed quite easily as so as those quite but more recently still as houthis using um i guess what are often termed as suicide boats in the red sea to target mm-hmm. both military and civilian shipping and whilst a lot of these are intercepted and there's not been a reported attack in quite some time again these are comparatively very cheap methods to target and tackle a very very expensive and politically significant vessel there's and there's a whole topic of of maritime drones as well mm. we say drones we think of yes yeah Byraptors yeah. and reapers and stuff but mm, yeah true there's a lot of development going on for for both at, both in a reconnaissance role as as anti-ship weapons as as all sorts you know it's a whole rich domain of of things that's only really just getting going yeah the the it's interesting that you brought up the uh the the part about you know uh, should ships start sinking again, that's going to be a major uh, a major wake up call. Uh, it's it you know I mean I, th- I think the last time there was any kind of mass casualty incident aboard a ship was the uh, the bombing of the USS Cole, hmm. and, and that was terrorism. That's not yes, yeah. it didn't yeah. sink it, but there were other actions. But hmm. you know that's the last naval campaign I can think of. Um, there've been naval elements to everything else, yeah. but but really no one has challenged. Certainly, you know, Pax Americana, um, American Navy on the seas for since I guess the Soviets. Yeah, and I think there's there's also another. I think there's another aspect as well that needs to be considered that hasn't. That's going to be a, a shock uh, because it hasn't really. You know, because we haven't seen a sort of a state on you know interstate conflict for quite some time uh, on land, let alone let, let alone at sea. And what could possibly be another. Uh, another major factor which will have a, a, a long-standing impact is the threat of UXOs uh, mm. in, in, in commercial shipping lanes. With monitoring of, of Ukraine at the moment, they're starting to notice quite a few instances of anti-ship mines just drift, uh, just mm. adrift in the Black Sea. They've been making their way. They've been sort of sighted near uh, Romanian and, and, and Turkish ports, mm. and it's caused quite. It's you know, as with the Black Sea being a, a a, uh, a place of, uh, of heavy commercial maritime traffic. Uh, those those ship, anti-ship mines floating around that area is you know, qu- is is causing quite a bit of concern. And to have that sort of situation occur, say in the, the South China Sea, that's going to make things very difficult for um, a very long period of time. I was about to say, mate, forget even UXO. Can mm. you imagine the supply chain disruption yes, if there was yeah. a localized conflict somewhere like South China Sea? And even if, you know, how long before a ship, you know, a merchant ship gets accidentally targeted and sunk or something, if if, if missiles are flying mm. around the place and, and say the South China Sea is yeah, probably yeah. the best example. Yep. But Yeah, there's a lot like, of histor- there's a lot of geographical choke points which heaven if a conflict were to to start there, it's not well, hard. Well, the Straits of Malacca. Yeah, like, you don't need to have much of an imagination waterway, to you know, be Yeah. Red Sea as well. Yeah. But uh so um okay so moving on to our second section then with that in mind obviously we can't discuss everything about modern conflict otherwise we'd be here for days but uh those i think those themes that we've discussed there come out quite a lot and are interesting nonetheless so moving on to section two of our of our round table is open source intelligence and how this has grown i guess in recent decade very much so in the last decade compared to previous years as well and what impact is this having on the way that conflicts are fought, not just conventional, but also uh, unconventional conflicts like insurgencies in Afghanistan? So I'll start with you, Matt, because obviously you cover Ukraine. It's very, um, we've seen a huge amount of open source content coming out of Ukraine. What impact do you think it's actually had on the ground? 
Uh, well, OSINT, when it comes to, I think, with, with Ukraine, the uh, the Russia-Ukraine war, one thing it's shown is that OSINT has truly come into its own as an intelligence as an intelligence discipline. Uh, over the years, there's always you know, there's been a, a sort of uh, animosity by other uh, disciplines of intel towards OSINT. You know, there, there were arguments saying that, OS, that open source intelligence isn't really intelligence because it's just open source information. But you look at what sort of coverage is occurring with the Ukraine war, like Twitter feeds, for example, of showing uh, weapon uh, weapon systems locations and people being able to geolocate those incidents, and you know, our efforts here as well with mon- with with monitoring those cha- uh, those sources, uh, news articles, uh, Telegram, Facebook, you know, getting all that breadth of information is what we what we've been able to do on our end on our end here is eff- effectively uh, carry out current intelligence monitoring without using a single classified source. So with the Russia-Ukraine war, OSINT has really come into its own as an intelligence discipline and its major contribution is, uh, well, in my opinion, what the major contribution of, of, of open source intelligence is that with its ability to provide a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, answers to intelligence requirements through publicly available information, that makes the use of classified sources so much more efficient. Uh, I mean, because those particular disciplines very often, they're very limited, they're, cost, they're very costly, and they take time to set up. So when you use those particular disciplines, be it SIGINT, QMINT, uh, and most of all, IMINT when it comes to the, the, the budget side of things, you really do need to ensure that what you're going to collect on Mm. is yeah, it, it's not that the the question hasn't already been answered and OSINT provides that very means uh, to do so. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd, I'd agree that we really are seeing OSINT come of age. I mean, they started really, to, I mean, it's only as a discipline sort of 10-ish years old in terms of the use of the internet and mm. social media and stuff. We saw companies like Bellingcat come about doing deep deep dive investigations of verifying war crimes in Syria um phone mm. hacking you know there's and it really shows the the pa- the horsepower that there is in even the amateur community to to find answers that you know your your legacy investigative journalists aren't going to find um i do think it can be open to abuse um i think verification still remains an issue um a lot of stuff comes along on twitter some of it gets recycled some of it's maliciously um used for for propaganda or or whatever so there are still issues you still need to it still needs assessing i think there's too too many people that just Mm -hmm. fire out the same old stuff it has limitations you know like it's we've we've seen it was great on the first day of the ukrainian invasion um we could map all the advances on on all of the Russian access, you know, just just through social media and people. Everyone's got a smartphone. Everyone's providing that information out there. I think on good authority that that Austin was outpacing, you know, proper military intelligence, like for 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 the U.S. military. That said, it's unregulated. You know, it doesn't have anything to lose if you if you put out faulty information. Your reputation suffers, maybe. Your online reputation suffers. Um, there's there's no actual consequences for, for putting out faulty OSINT analysis. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. as you said, we've seen open source intelligence becoming sort of coming of age, I guess you could say, as you said, in the last 10 years, conflicts like Syria and Yemen, both saw both found themselves being heavily, I guess you could say televised because they're mostly filmed on smartphones. And as you mm-hmm. also mentioned, you saw war, uh, war crimes such as the use of chemical weapons being verified and investigated through almost exclusively open source methods. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it was exclusively open source. So yeah, it's definitely, you know, like it's definitely got a role. And as you said as well, I, it's sometimes open source is kind of hamstrung by the fact that it's got such a broad definition. So you mm-hmm. get, so I think a lot of times open source is sometimes confused with just news. There's more to it than that. I think, uh, and, and uh, there's more to it. There's more along the verification process. And also, you have to analyze it. Otherwise it's just information. Exactly. You yeah. Have, you, you it know, has to be processed for a for consumer. It to be yeah. Intelligence experts need to look at it. Exactly, even if those yeah. experts are amateurs. Yeah. And I think we've seen actors in conflicts across the world, not just in Ukraine, very aware now as well how controlling the online narrative is quite important. And an example that sort of I covered a lot, I've been covering Afghanistan for a while now, is the Taliban and their use of social mm. media and their use of they're trying their their attempts to try and influence uh influence the narrative, influence the social media discussion and discourse. And they did I would say they did it very effectively especially to a foreign audience. So they, what you're saying about verification, for example, they published a picture claiming to show a crashed B-52 bomber and they claimed mm. to have sh- shot it down in Hellmand uh, a couple of years ago now, I think. And, and everyone went yeah. immediately like, oh my God, Taliban. Exactly. And downed this, one and tweeted it everywhere. And it was huge. And, and this story yeah, yeah. featured on major international outlets. And then a quick reverse search of the image that was shared shows you that it was actually a picture from a crash in Guam, I think it was. Mm. And... I saw one military, ex-military guy who was in Afghanistan for a while talking about the airbase where they claim it was shot down at, saying he was a picture of the airfield and he'd clearly measured it out saying this simply isn't big enough for B-52. This story is clearly mm-hmm. bogus, but it's, that's irrelevant. Well, the facts in this case were irrelevant because it was the first narrative and it exploded. Everyone was sharing it mm-hmm. and they're very aware. But then it's important, again, obviously we're open source analysis, so we're going to be very involved in the open, open source world, but it's important, again, to not over-exaggerate it, I guess. Again, context of Afghanistan, how many people in Afghanistan have access to the internet? I think last time, a few years ago, it was rated at around 10%. May have got, it's probably gone up by now. But um, So how many people is it actually influencing? And therefore, how much of an impact is it having on the ground? And I think from our perspective, that's actually very hard to gauge without being there ourselves. But, uh, yeah. And also, it's great for stuff like ongoing conflicts, but you're not, you're not going to get the, the, the context that, say, a, a well-placed human mm. source can give you. Um, yeah, yeah, you know it's great for working out capabilities, but maybe not intentions. Yeah, it's, yeah, um, that and sure. I think that is yeah. Figuring out intentions is always is probably the hardest part of yeah. of intel work, and that's almost the realm oh. of human of human and, and human and sigint. Mm. And I, I suppose I suppose just to sort of provide a, a, a bit more with regards to the the risks of OSINT, yeah, the 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 threat of of misinformation and propaganda is a very very real threat to keep an eye out on when it comes to and also the the nature of these days the first na- narrative wins although just to, i suppose use your example of the what you were mentioning about the crash b52 bomber when it comes to osint luckily there is the capabilities within the osint profession to uh, to go and uh, i suppose to go and vet to be able to verify if that if that is true or not, like you mentioned, like you went through mm. and you uh, reverse did a reverse image search to see if you know, how to uh, gain an understanding of how credible that information was. So, luckily, there you know, within within uh, OSINT, 
there is the ability to uh, to uh, to counter the uh, to to counter any uh, any threats posed by propaganda and uh, uh, by propaganda. And fortunately, the you've, you know with the wider intelligence profession, there's the you know, uh, multitude of other disciplines which can, when you combine those together, that can actually you know, either back up or or uh, or or discredit anything that o- o- being, that's being spread on OSINT. I mean, uh, another example that for, I suppose, Ukraine, with what you mentioned with the uh, B-52 incident in Afghanistan, is the ghost of Kiev mm. that was go- that was mm. going around. Uh, luckily, that was that was proven to be uh, to uh, to be false. And I think also another thing with with OSINT is it you know, to sort of um, borrow what what Alex what you were mentioning before with um, the the uh, amount of information and conducting analysis. Luckily, now with the spread of things like social media, um, in addition to traditional media, media, as well as what you can get from think tanks, it's now possible with OSINT in itself to do you know, to go through the full intelligence cycle of collecting, you know, having a, a a massive amount of of information out there to collect, which you can then proce- uh, analyze, process, and disseminate as intelligence product. So it's, I, I think it's. Despite the you know, despite the weaknesses and the flaws and the threats that exist within within OSINT, it's I, I'd I say it's still it's mm. come into its own as an intelligence as an intelligence discipline well, as it, you can you can go through the full intelligence cycle in that particular in that particular realm. Well, what I think the key point here is you're talking about narratives. You're talking about winning the winning the narrative war. And that that war takes place. It always used to take place in the media. Mm. Now it takes place on everyone's smartphone. Yeah. Um, and I really think people, thanks to social media, are seeing conflict images. They're seeing warfare in a way that they never would have bothered with before. You know, the, the, just just twenty years ago, if you just if you didn't want to know anything about the world, you just didn't watch the news. Yeah, yeah. You know, but everyone's getting. TikTok videos of tanks being blown up, and, yeah, yeah. and and while that's a great resource for us, it's open up another another front of a conflict, um, sort of outside of the conventional uniform military realm that that we always think of with war, um, and leads, like you say, great tool for propaganda. Zelensky's been using it mm. brilliantly, um, so it can be used well. It can be it can be a tool. It can be it can be used. I think um, to undermine morale, you know, it's sure. in a population, not just in the military. Yeah, and it's for me that really highlighted sort of how seriously both sides take the social media narrative. I guess. Don't get me wrong; I'm not saying they see it as more important than on the ground. Yeah, personnel, tweets but, don't stop tanks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but one thing, I, one thing I saw that really sort of highlighted that both sides do see this as important was a Twitter spat between the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan and the official Taliban spokesperson. Mm-hmm. They're just commenting on each other's stuff, trying to discredit each other. And it was interesting to watch because it was obviously carried out in English and the Taliban have always carried, I've always had a very sophisticated English language program, but it was interesting to watch because generally speaking, you'd expect these people almost, it's, it's almost funny, it's sort of laugh or cry if the situation wasn't so serious. It's almost funny, but it just goes to show that these commanders, NATO commanders in Afghanistan were very aware that these Taliban narratives were, they weren't just tweets, they were obviously they having power. some impact. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, so it was... It's, you know, you tell someone who's perhaps not so, you know, doesn't follow this stuff as closely as ourselves, perhaps. It, it's almost funny, you know, these two commanders having a Twitter spat, but then it's very serious. It is, you know, it's quite yeah, serious. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And it was... Um, one one other thing I'd like to mention on intelligence, and it's it's not so much to do... Well, it's not really to do with Austin, but 
what we've noticed that I think is very interesting in Ukraine is the actual use by states of rapidly declassified intelligence, Mm. in part, as you say, to win the narrative war. We saw this with um, US NATO powers coming out and saying that they knew what the Russians were up to, they were going to try a false flag, Mm. stuff like that. Now, you've got to protect your sources in intelligence, you know, whether that's a human source or or, or wherever it's come from, whether you've broken a code or hacked something, you know. So you don't generally release information Mm. that could ultimately lead back to, to how you were getting it. So it was very interesting to see pretty rapidly declassified mm. intelligence coming from official sources to win the narrative war, to, to disrupt any plans that the, the Russians had. Um, and it's interesting because you think no one would have, you know, go out to the Cold War. Yeah. No, one's, no one released anything. Um, so we've, we've almost seen a flip where the value of intelligence the value of secret intelligence is in making it public mm. um, in certain circumstances. It's not in keeping it secret. There's there's no value sort of thinking, sitting there and watching a false flag happen and then be like, oh, we knew that was going to happen. Mm. Um, the value is in getting it out there. Um, and I don't really recall seeing that much, certainly not so much in the public sphere in the past. No, I think it's a really good point. It's not one I've personally thought of either. The question, sort of the, our third section then is, is the West well prepared for conflict? And I think to address this, again, it's a massive question. I think what we mean by this really is conventional conflict. Is the West prepared for conventional conflict with a conventional opponent of a similar, a similar strength, power, whatever it may be? So again, I'll let you guys sort of start and I'll chip in if I, if I have any thoughts. So is the West prepared for conventional conflict? Uh Short answer: Absolutely, absolutely not. Uh, with a, but that is with the exception of the United States. They're probably the only Western nation who will be prepared for a if a if, if a conventional conflict were to break out in the uh, tomorrow. The, the United States would be the only ones who would be able to not just defend their own territory, but project force beyond the, uh, beyond their borders. Um, because what I've sort of noticed in this job and also all going all the way back to uh, time in the military is with the exception of the United States, Western countries have been quite apathetic towards their own national defense since world war two. Essentially a a lot of Western nations have taken a, uh, yeah, just let the, the, the Americans, the Americans do the heavy lifting and will provide niche, uh, niche capabilities. And this is, this is a, this is a sort of sin that, uh, that Niccolo Machiavelli warned about, uh, in his book, The Prince. Now, that was written back in Renaissance Italy. And he, his, you know, writers on that were, if you're going to, you know, rely on auxiliaries. So in this case, every other country but the United States has relied on the United States for years. So they've been using auxiliaries to carry out national defense. And what happens there is that you've got a situation where if you need to use, uh, you know, use force without that kind of capability, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And it's, uh, it, there's, I suppose, two points on this I'd like to bring up as sort of an elephant in the room, uh, or, or elephants in the room in this case, is that aside from the apathetic attitude amongst a lot of the Western nations towards their own, their own military capabilities, so, uh, budget cuts, uh, that have occurred over the years, be it the UK, Australia, uh, New Zealand, Canada, or, or any other Western nation for that uh, for that matter, is 
alongside that, a lot of Western a lot of Western nations have been using their militaries uh, for purposes other than uh, use of force. Have been using them for just their every if for anything else, but uh, you know providing that providing national uh, national defence and be, uh, use of force beyond borders. You've got to sympathise. Going back to the original question of you know are we prepared? If we're talking conventional and we're talking material and weapons platforms and and the like, there are certainly problems. Again, Western centric view. There's certainly problems. I think in force generation, um, budget cuts for years. Mm. We've had financial crisis. We've had COVID. Um, it's in no. There's no votes in defence really. So budgets have been cut and cut. Speaking for the, for the UK, we've seen major weapons procurements that have been nerfed. You know, we were going to get 12 Type 45s and then it was eight and now we've got six. Um, which we don't, we have some exquisite weapon systems, we have some cutting edge stuff, but we don't have many of them. Mm. So the Challenger 3, I think, is less than 200 of them being ordered. I believe right? there's going to be something like 150, 148 yeah, is, is, is in my mind, something like that. Yeah, great. If if it lives up to the to the the spec sheet, it it could be a a great great weapon system. But there's not that many of them. Um, you can ask, well, are we going to be using? Where are we going to be using them? You've got to feel sorry for, say, like British military planning. Like, how many years ago were the last vestiges of the British Army of the Rhine withdrawn mm. from Germany? And it was like, right, that's that done and dusted. We're doing counterinsurgency on the other side of the globe. Now there's talk of putting a heavy brigade permanently in Germany again mm, because yeah. of, because of Russians. You think, you know, this this is not easy stuff. You know, ev- events, dear boy, events sort of sort of ruin these things. But there's definitely a, a, a lack of funding. There's a funding gap. You look at the UK. You think, going back to naval, for example, I believe the heavy anti-ship missile we've got left is is harpoon and that was meant to be retired a couple of few years ago we don't have a replacement and you sort of think so we don't have a heavy anti-ship capability Mm. it's like we can't we can't sink ships you sort of think how has that happened there's other stuff there's the the tender the supply ships that are needed to be commissioned so that the the carriers that we've just got all be there with hardly any jets on the things these massive carriers that we've got at well using at well under capacity they need supply ships no one's ordered any no one's cut any steel on them um and i think as perverse as this sounds and at, at a terrible cost maybe ukraine will act as a wake-up call when it comes to defense spending we've already seen the germans have the Germans have pinky sworn to increase their defence spending to 2%. Um, but I think maybe people will realise that decades of counterinsurgency and rocking in American-style massively superior air power, wiping out a, a Cold War-era military and basically doing what we want, those those days may well be over. You know, we're, conflict may well not be on our own terms. Um, and in that sense, we're not really prepared. Um, Conversely, something you're saying about the lessons from Ukraine there as well, whether that would prepare the West. I wonder, again, this is very hypothetical, I wonder if 
not just the West, but all militaries, I guess, to an extent, would take the wrong lessons from Ukraine. So, you know, it's no secret that the Russians appear to have quite seriously struggled. You know, their logistics have been reported to have been very poor. Their casualties are very high. And I wonder if people are looking at this conflict thinking, ah, it's because the Russian military is terrible, which obviously there's clear deficiencies in the Russian military. But then as a NATO planner with such high tech, and if you're the Americans, very large air force, you can't help but wonder, are they looking at that 17 kilometer long convoy outside of Kiev that was in the news, that Russian convoy that's mm. reported to run out of fuel? Are they looking at that thinking, easy target, you know, air power wins all in this convoy, mm. air, our air power would have won this, it would have won that. And I wonder perhaps if, because we're seeing... Russian forces appear to have been mismanaged as a result. Yeah, tragically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you have, oh, to, yeah. Well, have to... Not tragically, actually. <laughs> the, yeah, that, that is a... You bring up a very good yeah. point there. That is a major risk of creating a lot of hubris uh, yeah. with regards to how the West could uh, could fight in, in in the next one because the, you know... If, well, if there's sorry. probably if there's probably one thing it, it, you know that the you know from what I've been checking with uh, you know looking at with regards to Russia Ukraine war is that you know the yet yeah, the logistics were awful the planning was awful and that was on the basis that the Russians completely underestimated mm. the intent for the Ukrainians uh, the Ukrainians to fight yeah. well of and not they, to get in the weeds of also that basically no one knew they were actually going to do it except for yeah. Yeah. Vlad and a, a couple of his closest chums you know so there was yeah the force composition everything was was terrible it, mm. it was not there were actually experts who knew this stuff and said they're not going to invade because the force makeup makes absolutely no yeah, sense yeah. their disposition makes no sense if they're going to invade this is a bluff in yep. a sense they knew too much you know yeah um, and all, also i think what that also uh, what that also uh creates a risk of is with all the flaws that have been seen with regards to how the how the russians have fought in in uh, in ukraine what I think is being ignored, and uh, to to the risk, uh, to the you know, to the peril of the West, is you look at what's happening now with Ukraine. The Russians have withdrawn from Kiev, yes, but they're now going to the east and concentrating their forces in that part of Ukraine. As you know, there's been a lot of there's you know been a lot to say about how the Russians weren't able to take Kiev, but they you can guarantee one thing: the Russians are not going to give up until they get what they want, and. That is one thing that the West will really need to keep in mind when it comes to when it comes to the next war. Is that the end is if they have to go up against the Russians or or the Chinese for that matter, they need to be very aware that the they'll be up against a, they'll be up against an adversary who will not stop. Doesn't matter how many tanks or people or aircraft or ships they lose, they will have the intent on keeping going until they get what they want. I suppose yeah, some societies are less perceptible less susceptible to um the attrition i suppose mm. you know the, the pi is certainly authoritarian regimes who can who can suppress information theory population i admit but going back to the logistics we've already seen failures in logistics from the west i mean the the libya when the libya campaign in what 2011 it was all touted that oh the french and the british are leading the way mm. It's like yeah, and they they ran out of tomahawks in the first five minutes and had to go begging to the Americans, you know, could we please have some more ammunition? Because we don't bother with stockpiles, it would seem. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh... You get some big high profile stuff like I've seen. I've seen a great example: the British carrier, the Queen Elizabeth carrier. People love it, symbol of Britannia ruling the waves and stuff. But there's hardly any jets on it. Mm. We we operate with others for that. The escort fleet is not very big. 
doesn't have a you know we we need a supply ship or supply ships for them to be able to do their job in five ten years or whenever the the current ones are, are, are slated to to be gone and you know we we just we don't invest in these things so I think if a if a conflict jumped up and and bit us then in many ways we're not prepared the British are terrible for their capability gaps mm. you know like oh we won't we got rid of a got rid of the carriers you know again budget always yeah. always budget i'm not saying that defense should just have a, a blank check you know but you you do sort of think you can only cut stuff so much and and then like it goes back to what you say matt you know with plugging the gaps it's like the military has a lot of has a lot of responsibilities and then you see the british government you know Calling them, in, calling the army in to replace the the fire service, mm. um, using certain bags at the Olympics in London. Mm. We've now got the Royal Marines supposedly patrolling to deal with the, with cross channel immigra- illegal immigration. You sort of think, I think I've met a few Marines. I think it's a little below their capabilities doing this. You know, like it's not an exactly an efficient use of of resources. You know. Especially yeah. when we have a border force, supposedly. I think it all comes down to sort of what we were saying earlier as well, particularly in Western Europe. It's obviously a very Western-centric conversation, but particularly in Western Europe, that lack of the external threat, I think governments almost feel the need to justify their military expenditure by showing their military and, well, I guess we could say civilian roles, of firefighting or the channel, stuff like that, and then people perhaps be more willing to see their tax money going towards the military. But it's sort of, again, without that external threat, it's hard to see how the Western world would yeah, no. respond to this. To yeah. uh, no no one's going to, especially, you know, with, with budgets, cost of living, that sort of thing, no one is going to support mm. any significant rise in, in spending on the military. I mean... Yeah, I, I think uh, the, probably the best way forward for the, the West to, you know, rapidly... You know, rapidly improve its situation and have a chance of being prepared for the next for the next conflict. Really, I suppose with regards to um, with regards to procurement, uh, and I'd uh, I'd say this would certainly apply to or well, to to uh, to Australia, Canada, and and New, New Zealand, and in fact just the wider West in uh, West in general. I think it would be to follow Poland's example with what I was saying with regards to their their perch their their signing a deal to buy two hundred and fifty Abrams tanks. Um, would be to take an approach of buying you know just when it comes to procurement, buy stuff that works. Uh, essentially, just have a you know take a a, a major an approach of buying equipment, uh, mm. you know, buying equipment that had that has been tested uh, on the battlefield. So, for example. Um, you know, Australia's made this, you know, committed this sin uh, quite quite a bit over, over the years with regards to its procurement with uh, helicopters. For example, they had the Tiger arm, arm reconnaissance helicopter. It was uh, it was completely un- uh, it turned out to be completely unfit for purpose. Uh, there's been the same with the MRH ninety uh, Taipan uh, helicopter. It was supposed to re- uh, replace the the Black Hawk helicopters, um, and that's proven to be you know unfit for purpose as well. And then there's the subs, which we discussed with uh, with the you know, or- with the AUKUS podcast uh, not too long ago, and Australia's long and proud history of not being able to really deliver a uh, deliver a capability in terms of in terms of submarines. Well, uh, I do I do think I mean I was gonna I was gonna bring up AUKUS actually, but um, yeah, I'd agree buy something that works off the shelf the trouble is 
that's a lot more things are a lot more complicated than that there's too many vested interests people want to build stuff in their own country big ticket defense procurement is probably the most complicated most difficult mm. thing that governments do you know you've got to design something using cutting edge technology possibly even technology that doesn't really exist and doesn't quite work yet anyway. And it has to simultaneously be, be useful in counterinsurgency and conventional yeah, conflict. Yeah, it's yeah. going to come online in years, possibly, you know, a decade, possibly even more. It's going to be in service probably for decades after that. You've no idea what really it's going to be used for. Mm. Um, it's going to be retrofit. Budgets are almost certainly going to be cut halfway through and again and again. So you might end up with less platforms you might have to do cost saving measures people want to build it in their own country whether they've got the industry for it or not i mean look at a great example the current one the british ajax program i mean just google it man <laughs> it's like i can't go into it all but it three, i think about three and a half billion pounds and and several years later we've got yeah. like a dozen a dozen IFVs that deafen the crews and shake them to jelly. You know, it's like... Yeah, it's a good case yeah. of sort of this needs to be able to do everything. So you end up with a large gun, a lot of armour, because that well, makes it very heavy. Well, this, which makes I think this is what happened with Ajax. Yeah, I was exactly. really sure. So we try and tick tick a box for every single eventuality. You end up none as a result. And yeah, yeah, you end up with something that, that yeah. you just can't make work. You know? Yeah. So yeah. I was going to say, I'm going to bring up August. August is kind of a... It's an encouraging sign. It's like the argument, you know, there's lots of people say, well, Orcas should have happened 10, 15 years ago. It's like, yeah, but it was a different world 10 or 15 years ago. Stuff like Orcas coming along, the quad seems to be revivified somewhat. Mm. Um, the Europeans, what with this invasion of, of Ukraine, maybe they'll actually get on board with being the European pillar of NATO properly. Um, I don't know if I said it before, it sounds very perverse and it's coming a hell of a cost, but maybe this, this Ukraine invasion is a wake-up call um, and and people will start taking defence, not just spending and procurement, but like you say, multilateralism, proper defence agreements, actually getting engaged instead of just sitting around waiting for the Americans to do all the heavy lifting and then sort of moaning that they didn't do it as... Mm, we would have, yep. you know. One other thing I would say is, are we prepared? Is when it comes to say like supply chain? No, absolutely not. Mm. I think just enough, just in time. Major war. Look at what just you know the invasion of Ukraine has done to oil prices. Yeah. Look at what it's done to grain. That's yeah. going to hit a lot of countries a lot worse than us. Certainly, in the developing world. You know. Um, goes back to what we're saying. Imagine a naval conflict in the South China Sea. What would that do to supply chains? And I think it would be a hell of a shock for certainly, certainly Western countries that are used to just ordering stuff on the phone and having it delivered the mm. next day. Um, that's not going to happen. I think that wraps us up pretty nicely then. So thanks you two for your comments and opinions. I think this is such a broad subject. It's so hard to sort of nail down exactly what you want to talk about. So I think, yeah, we've gone on a bit, but I'm hoping it's pretty interesting to people who've, who've clicked on this and sort of it's interesting content is relevant as well that's one thing i think that makes this quite interesting uh if you're interested in open source intelligence or osint and you want to get involved in the online community we at intelligence fusion have our own discord channel so if you want to get involved just follow the link in the description we also do fortnightly episodes of the insight and if you're interested in those you can find the link in the description